right, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter tw- uh, 12. We're going to start in Jef- Genesis chapter 12 before we get to 22. Uh, and uh, just want to say, gosh, it was so cool this morning. Uh, usually I'm sitting in the back with noisy kids, but uh, since my noisy kids are not here this morning, I uh, got to sit up front and got the opportunity to uh, hear everybody sing, and it was so beautiful. And uh, as I'm looking out there, I see the Chitwoods out there. And I uh, want to just, first of all, uh, celebrate with you guys this week, right? We, uh, we uh, are officially adopting. And uh, we, we have been also praying for Paul. Yes, praise God. Uh, also been praying for Paul, and, and we've already talked about it, just uh, the big move that you've got. We are so uh, just blessed and amazed at how God has worked in your life and, and continues to, to move you into bigger and better places and, and we'll continue to pray for you in that role. So thank you guys for being here. So anyhow, let's go ahead and open up Genesis chapter 12 and uh, quick update. We are taking a break from Luke where we've been walking through the gospel of Luke together and for this Christmas season we decided to focus on Jesus is the promises of Jesus in the Old Testament, because often it is easy for us to forget those promises and to forget God's faithfulness in our life. And so my hope and my prayer is as we look at all the promises in the Old Testament of Jesus, it will encourage our faith and our trust in the faithfulness of God towards us as we see that. And so last week, if you were here, pop quiz, where is the first place in the Bible that Jesus is mentioned? Where's the first place in the Bible that Jesus is mentioned? A little bit of a trick question. Okay, it's not the New Testament. It's not even like Isaiah, one of the prophets. It's Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And that's what we talked about last week. And I I would encourage you, if you were not here last Sunday, it would help you tremendously to go back and listen to last week's sermon. Because in last week's sermon, we took a look at Genesis 3, 15, which is really... It, it, it sets the tone for the rest of the series. And we walk from Genesis 3.15 all the way to Christ. Now, Genesis 3.15, if you remember, is in the context of the curse. Uh, it, it's pretty awesome that immediately after Adam and Eve, after humans had rebelled against God and the whole world was corrupted because of sin, immediately God responds with amazing grace. And as he's cursing Satan, the serpent, he says this. He says, I'm going to put enmity or hatred between you and the woman and between your offspring, literally your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so in other words, there's going to be a descendant of Eve that will one day crush you, destroy you. Yes, you will bruise them but he will crush you. This is the first glimpse of the gospel. And so the Old Testament, you can follow that promise, that seed, that offspring, all the way to Jesus. You see it in the next chapter in Genesis 4 is the story of Cain and Abel. And at the end of that story, Adam and Eve, they have another child, Seth. And then in Genesis chapter 5, you see the genealogy from Seth to this guy named Noah. And then you, you see the story of the flood, that God preserves the seed through the flood, and then after the flood, God gives, makes a covenant with Noah, and then you see another genealogy from Noah to a guy called Abram, 
which is who we're going to talk about today. And Genesis chapter 12, Abram, who would become Abraham, God calls him to leave his home, to leave his family, but he also makes an amazing promise to him, a promise of abundant blessing. And so today, this is the, if you're taking notes, this is the outline for the sermon. We're going to ask basically three questions. We're going to ask the question, okay, what was that promise to Abram? Number two, how does Christ fulfill that promise? Because ultimately, all of this points to Christ. And then thirdly, how does that promise impact us today? So let's pray one more time, and then we're going to dive into this text. Father, I plead with you that you would help me explain your word in a way that is understanding. I pray that you would help me proclaim it passionately. And I pray that your spirit would move in us to believe it and that it would change our lives for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so what is the promise? We're going to actually run through chapters 12 to 22 and hit the highlights. And in these 10 chapters, you're going to see about 40 years of Abraham's life. And in these chapters, you're going to see God over and over confirm and reconfirm the promise that he lays out here in Genesis chapter 12. And he does that in a number of different ways, both audibly and through circumstances and through trials and even through unbelief. He reaffirms his promise to Abram. You're also going to see that God forges Abraham's faith during these chapters and really prepares him for what would happen in Genesis 22 when God tests him in a pretty harsh way. So Genesis 12 actually finds Abram, a, and Joshua, in the book of Joshua, describes him as a pagan worshiper. And so the point is that God plucks this guy out of nowhere. There's nothing special about Abram. He doesn't deserve this promise. God goes and looks at this pagan worshiper and says, okay, you are going to be the guy that is going to be a blessing to the entire world. Through your offseed, you're going to be a blessing to the entire world. That's God's sovereign wisdom. So pick up in Genesis 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land that I will show you. In other words, leave everything that you know, leave everything that you love and go. Where, God, where do you want me to go? I'll tell you later. I'll tell you later. So here's the promise, verse 2. And I will make you, or I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So if you're taking notes, there's really four parts initially to this promise. Number one, God promises Abram that I will make you or make of you a great nation, which is pretty amazing if you take into the fact that Abraham is old as dirt and has no kids. This is a miraculous promise. The only way this promise is going to happen is if there is a miracle. That's number one. Number two, he says, I will bless you and make you a, your name great. And so everybody's going to remember you. 
which is true. 4,000 years later, we're still talking about them, right? Number three, I will make you a blessing. In fact, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then fourth, there's a promise of protection. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who dishonor you. Now, there's a fifth part to the promise that we actually see down in verse 7. Abraham, he listens to God. He takes his whole family. He leaves his home country at the spry age of 75. And he goes from Haran to the land of Canaan, where God appears to him again and says that to your offspring, I'm going to give you this land. And so Abraham wants to remember that moment. And so what does he do? He builds an altar to remember that moment in Canaan. Now, it's going to become very obvious that just because you're blessed by God doesn't mean your life is going to be perfect. doesn't mean that you're not going to experience trials. In fact, soon after, he moves his whole family out of the safety of where he grew up into Canaan. There's a famine. There's no food for his family. And so it pushes him into Egypt which may sound familiar to to some of you later on in Genesis, that happens again to the Israelites. Well, that that short stint in Egypt that he spends because of the famine is significant because God uses it, that experience, to prove his faithfulness. Uh, In fact, he goes to Egypt, and he's scared for his life, actually. He's scared because his wife is actually very attractive, and he fears that Pharaoh is going to take his wife and kill him. And so he gets Sarah to to lie and, and say, look, we're just brother and sister. Which, by the way, technically, they shared the same father. They had different mothers, but they shared the same father. And so he wasn't fully lying, but he wasn't telling the whole truth either. He was lying because he, he didn't want Pharaoh to know that this is, my, this is my wife. And so the Pharaoh ends up taking Sarai as his wife and treats Abraham or Abram very well. But then God begins to send these plagues on Pharaoh's house. Again, sounds kind of familiar, right? Well, Pharaoh finds out what's going on, and he essentially kicks Abram and Sarah out of Egypt, but he sends them away with all sorts of provision and protection. And so even though God, Abraham was not, he didn't trust God's promise, he, he, he lied about the, his wife. His wife ends up getting abducted and forced to to be a wife to somebody else, and God still shows his faithfulness. The lesson here is that God keeps his promises. He is a promise keeper. Even when we are faithless, he is faithful. Eventually, after that short stint in Egypt, he eventually goes back to that same altar that he had built in Canaan, and he settles there for a season. And during that time, God elaborates, and you can look at Genesis chapter 13, Uh, Starting in verse 14, he elaborates on the promise that he had given earlier on in chapter 7 of, uh, in chapter 12, verse 7. He says, lift up your eyes, look from the place where you are, northward and southward, eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. So Abraham has, think about this, he's already survived moving his whole family away from his home. He survived a famine. He survived his wife being abducted and forced to be another man's wife. And things don't really get easier after that. After uh, Abraham settles back in Canaan, 
he's with his nephew Lot and his family. Okay, he brought Lot with him, and there's not enough provision resources in that area. And so he says to Lot, "Look, you're going to have your family is going to have to move away from here if we're all going to survive." And so he says to Lot, "Look, you can pick wherever you want to go, and I'll go a different direction." So Lot looks around and he sees this very fertile place, Sodom of Sodom and Gomorrah, and he goes there, which doesn't turn out real well for him. In fact, immediately he finds himself in the middle of a war. So Lot. Uh, ends up getting abducted uh, because he lives in Sodom, and Sodom gets, they, they get beat in this war. And so he gets taken by these kings of the east, and so Abraham, or Abram at this time, finds out about it, and so he goes after his nephew Lot with an army, which is his first military battle, and, and he's victorious because God is with him. He saves his nephew Lot, and it's interesting, right after that, one of the kings that had been defeated comes to Abraham. His, it, he's got a cool name, Achillesdeck. He comes to Abraham, and he blesses Abraham. And what's really interesting about Achillesdeck is that in the Hebrews, in the New Testament, he's mentioned. He's mentioned as a Christ character, as a foretaste to Christ, because, uh, first of all, his name literally means king of righteousness, Melchizedek means king of righteousness, and he also was literally the king of this place called Salem. Salem means peace, so he's the king of peace, he was the king of righteousness, and Salem would eventually become Jerusalem, God's holy city. And so Melchizedek, who was also a priest of the Most High God, blesses Abraham, which is another way that God was using to just remind Abram of the promise that he had given way back in Genesis chapter 12. So we move on to Genesis chapter 15, and it starts with God saying to Abram, look, fear not. Okay, you think about it, Abram's been through a lot at this point. He's been through a war, his wife being abducted, through famine. He says, fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Now, also remember, Abram is old, and he's been promised that He's gonna, his family's going to be this huge nation. And he's not getting any younger. And so he, he questions God, like I think a lot of us would. And so this is what God does in Genesis chapter 15. You can look at verse 5. He takes Abraham or Abram outside and he says, look up. It's the nighttime. He says, look up at the stars. And he says, look towards heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them, then he says to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Let me say that again. So Abram believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Have you ever asked the question or wondered, how did people in the Old Testament get saved? How were they saved? Before Jesus, how were they saved? Well, this passage gives us some insight into that. And Paul actually talks about this in Romans. He refers back to this. But they were saved the same way we were, through faith. It was faith in the promises of God that saved Abraham. He believed in the future promises that God had given him. And so God counted it as righteous. And, and that word counted means to assign a value. And so God looks at Abram's faith and he assigns a value of righteousness to his faith. He says, look, I see your faith and because... You've trusted in me. Because you have faith in me, you are counted as righteous. You have a right relationship with me. Your sins are forgiven. Okay, same way we are saved. 
when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. He looks at us and he sees Christ because we've believed in the promises of God. Okay, so it doesn't mean his faith is perfect. In fact, in the very next chapter, Abram and his wife, they become impatient with God's promises. Uh, they, they still don't have a, any children. They're getting older and older. And so Sarah has the idea, look, I'm going to give you my, my servant, Abram, and you can have a child with her. Okay, she's younger. You can have a child with her, and that, that will at least get the, get the ball rolling to this family that we're supposed to have that's going to be a, a great nation. And so Abram does that. And Abram and Hagar, his servant, have a child named Ishmael, who eventually does become a great nation, but it, it only causes strife and, and frustration within, within their family. And so that wasn't God's plan. So we look at chapter 17, and God, once again, he reaffirms the covenant that he made with Abram. And during that time, he also changes Abram's name to Abraham, which, by the way, Abram means exalted father. Abraham means a father of a multitude. And so, again, he's reaffirming his promise. Like, don't give up on this promise. Okay, I'm a, I'm a God of miracles. I, I, can, I know you're old. And, and after this, he actually introduces the sign of the covenant, which is circumcision. So again, another way that God is just continuing to remind him of the promise that he had made way back in Genesis chapter 12. And so finally, at the age of 99, God comes to Abram, or Abraham at this point, and tells him and his wife that, look, you're going to have a child together. And what do they do? They laugh. And so God says, you need to name your child Isaac, which means one who laughs. And so in chapter 18, uh, we find the story of Sodom in Gomorrah. And so why, what does that have to do with this whole story? Again, it's another way that God showed that he is a promise keeper. Abraham, during that time, he intercedes for Sodom. Why does he intercede for Sodom? Because his nephew Lot lives in Sodom. And he pleads with God, don't destroy Sodom. God was intent on destroying Sodom and Gomorrah because of all the sin that was going on in there. Just an unrighteous place. And so Abraham, Abraham pleads with God, will you spare at least my, my, my nephew. And so God does. God, God spares Lot's life because of Abraham's request. And once again, God continues to show that he is going to be faithful to Abraham and, and his family. In chapter 20, Abraham's wife is abducted again, a second time. This time it's by a, name, a guy by the name of Abimelech. Uh, and, and again, Abraham had lied about who his wife was. said, look, she's just my sister. And again, another man takes him. Uh, this time, before Abimelech could make her uh, his wife, God appears to him in a dream and just scares him to death. And he goes back to Abram and says, like, what are you doing? Why would you do this to me? And again, he, uh, he, he sends him away, but he sends him away again with even more wealth. And so again, over and over, you see this pattern of God, even when Abram and Sarah don't trust in God. Even when they try to take things into their own hand, God continues to show his grace and that he is faithful to keep his promise. And it's finally in Genesis chapter 21 that, they, that she gives birth to Isaac, the promised seed, the promised son. By this point, Abraham's 100 years old. His wife's 90 years old. And Sarah starts to get protective, okay, because it's 
typically the oldest son that would get the inheritance. And so she says, Abram, I want, Abraham, I want you to send away Hagar and Ishmael. Okay, I, I don't want them to be part of our family. And that upsets Abraham at first, but God intervenes and, and says, listen to your wife. Isaac is the promised seed. And so he sends them away, but God, even God protects Ishmael and his mom after this, and he promises to make them a great nation. Again, everything that Abraham touches, it seems like, prospers because God has made this promise. So even uh, that guy Abimelech that had abducted his wife comes to Abraham and wants to make a treaty with him. And so we come to Genesis chapter 22, which of course is the famous story of Abraham and Isaac where God tests Abraham in a major way. And he, he tells Abraham, look, take your son Isaac, the, the promised offspring, and go up into the mountaintop and I want you to sacrifice him. I want, I want you to kill your only son of the promise. And we know that Isaac was old enough that he must have known that he's not a baby at this point. Okay, he knows what's going on. Uh, we see in the story that Isaac was the one that actually carried the wood uh, to, to, for the burnt offering. And so he must have been, I would say, a young man at this point. Commentators argue between 15 to 33 that he could have been. And so by this point, Abraham's at least 115 years old. It's been 40 years now at this point since they had original promise in Genesis chapter 12. And Abraham hears this command from God. He doesn't plead with God. He doesn't question God. At this point, he just says, okay, I'll go. And right before he's about to bring the knife down on his son, this is what happens. Turn to Genesis chapter 22, uh, starting in verse 11. And the story, it almost goes into slow motion. If you were watching this on a movie, the, the author just spells out each moment and slows everything down. Verse 11, right before the knife's about to come down. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, getting his attention. He said, here I am. Abraham said that. He, he said, the angel said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes, and he looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went, and he took the ram, and he offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. What a beautiful picture of the gospel. What a beautiful picture of Christ, who would be our substitute on the cross. He would sacrifice himself in the place of us. Verse 14, so Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven. And he said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. Because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. And once again, God reminds him of the promise that he gave him 40 years ago. Verse 17, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heavens and as the sand that is on the seashore. 
and your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies. In other words, I will protect you and prosper you. Verse 18, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Now, when God says, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have withheld your son. Did God really not know what Abraham was going to do? Did, Ab- did, Abraham, did God really not know Abraham's heart in this situation? Of course, God knew all of that. God, God know, that doesn't jive with Scripture that God didn't know. That Isaiah 46, 9, 9 and 10. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all of my purpose. Of course, God knew already what Abraham was going to do. The Lord knew Abraham's thoughts, his intentions to be obedient. 1 Chronicles 28.9, For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. And so, why did God say that then? What did God mean by saying, Now I know that you fear God. This was not an admission of ignorance. This was a declaration of acceptance. This was said for Abraham's benefit. It was an encouragement to him for being obedient. Uh, The word know in the original language means to ascertain by seeing. And so God had, he already knew Abraham's heart. He knew his intentions to be obedient. He knew what he would do, but he had not seen it. But now he did. God knew what Abraham's faith would be like. He knew, it would, he knew that he would pass the test, but Abraham had not been given the opportunity to display that faith. And so that's why he says this. I believe that everything that we've talked about from Genesis chapter 12 to 22, everything up to this point was God preparing Abraham for this moment. All the trials that he went through, the constant reminders from God of his faithfulness, the, the, even the shocking provision that God gave, even while Abraham was faithless at times. Over 40 years, God forged a faith in Abraham that made it, that was so strong that when God asked him to give up his, his own son, he was obedient to it. We learn in Hebrews that Abraham believed so strongly in the promises of God at this point in his life that he trusted God to bring his son Isaac back from the dead if he would have went through with sacrificing him. Paul, in his letter to the Romans, he, he teaches us that the, the flame of faith, is, it's ignited by God's word, which is what we see in the life of Abraham. God speaks to him and he believes and is counted to him as, as righteousness. But that faith has to grow. How does it grow? It needs to be flamed. And how does God flame or how does he fan the flame of faith? Often it's through affliction. It's through trials. Isaiah 48.10, Behold, God says, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. 
Peter catches that in 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. He says this, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes through it, it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the story of Abraham is such a wonderful reminder that God uses the trials of your life to teach you about his faithfulness. And it forges an obedient faith in you. That trial that you're going through right now, the trouble with your spouse, the, your father having cancer, the, the medical issue that you're going through right now, the pending move that you're going to have to make here soon away from family, the, the challenges at school that you face or at your job, all of those are God's gracious provision and gift to prepare you for an obedient faith in the future. I've talked about this before. That I hate that phrase that we hear often that's not in the Bible where people say, God will never give you more than you can handle. Okay? God gives us more than we can handle all the time so that we would lean on him more and we would trust in him more. And also, when he gives us more than we can handle, just like he did with Abraham over and over and over, it allows God an opportunity to show off his faithfulness to us. And that forges a faith that will be stronger in the end. As a church, we've endured a lot. I mean, this year, gosh, going through a flood is not an easy thing to do as a church. But man, look how God used that and provided for us in the midst of it. And think about all the things we've gone through before that that prepared us to be faithful in the midst of the flood. I, I, I took a look back on Facebook in the last several years, just pictures. I just scanned through pictures of, of Mercy Hill, and I was just blown away at reminders of God's faithfulness as we've celebrated baptisms and adoptions and egg drops and serving the communi community and, and just the, the wonderful relationships and birthday parties that we've, we've had and, and, and the lives that have been radically transformed because of the gospel and his faithfulness. And I was reminded, again, fresh, that God has not brought us this far just to drop us. He hasn't brought you this far just to drop you. He will remain faithful. Even when we're faithless, he will remain faithful. And I can't wait to see what the next five years brings us. Abraham, he passes God's testing because his faith had been forged over 40 years of God providing his faithfulness or proving his faithfulness in the midst of affliction. After years of trying to, to take things into his own hands, he finally comes to the point where he has learned that God is going to provide everything that I need. And that's what I, I pray for us, that through the trials and the affliction of our lives, that God will bring us to a point that we recognize that he is going to provide everything that we need in Christ. And so I want to look back at this promise again now from this side of the cross. What do we learn uh, about this? How does Christ fulfill this promise? First, God promises Abraham that he would give him a new land, right? 
a promised land where his offspring, if he caught it, would live forever. It would be an everlasting possession, Genesis 15, 18 through 21. In Hebrews, as the author of Hebrews reflects on the life of Abraham, he says, Abraham was looking forward to a city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. So evidently, Abraham envisioned and not just an earthly paradise, but a heavenly one. He envisioned what the New Testament calls the New Jerusalem, our final resting place where all of us who are in Christ will one day be freed from our bondage of sin. We will, for all of eternity, be blessed by the presence of God himself. It is through Christ that we will enter into that eternal promised land. He fulfills the promise. Second, God promised a seed or an offspring to Abraham that would be a blessing to all nations. Now, we, we talked about this last week, and we connected the dots from Genesis 3.15 all the way to Jesus. Uh, Paul reflected specifically about this dot in uh, Genesis 22. Uh, Paul, in Galatians 3.16, he says this, and this is so huge. He says, now the promises were made to Abraham. And he says this, and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. And so Paul, again, helps us connect the dots here, pointing out that the blessing that was originally promised to Abraham way back in Genesis chapter 12, and then proven to him over and over over the next 40 years, that promise would eventually find its fulfillment in a Messiah that would make everything right. There's one offspring that, in particular, he was going to use to bless the entire world. And it's interesting, the context of Galatians chapter 3, when Paul says that, he's talking about unity. He says, in Christ there is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, free male or female. All of us in Christ are one. He says this in verse 29. It says, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's, you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Which leads us to our final question. How does this promise given to Abraham 4,000 years ago impact us today? Because if we are, if you are in Christ, that means you are an heir of this promise. That promise is for you also. God promised Abraham that his offspring would be a great nation, which is exactly what Peter calls the church. 1 Peter 2.9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So here's the application. Peter is calling the church to spread the blessing of Christ to continue the mission that Jesus started. We are to proclaim the promise that was given to, to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12 that was fulfilled in Christ. We are to proclaim that blessing. You see, Christmas is not just about the physical blessings that we get by giving Christmas gifts and being around family. Christmas is about a much bigger blessing, about Jesus, the ultimate blessing. 
the ultimate gift that we can give others. And so my challenge to, to you and myself this Christmas is that we would be intentional about investing and inviting those who don't know Christ. And so I want you to ask that question to yourself today. Is who can I invest in? Who can I invite that doesn't know Christ? Maybe it's a, a neighbor that you can invite. This is, Cam and I have, have made this our goal this Christmas season to invite our neighbor to come over for dessert uh, this year just to get to know him. Um, who, maybe it's a coworker that you could invite to the, the Christmas party next Sunday. Uh, maybe, maybe it's a, a family member that you can invite to uh, Christmas Eve service. I mean, people will come to a Christmas Eve service that won't come all year long. So use that as an opportunity to invest and invite and share the greatest promise ever given, Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for proving over and over in your word and also in our lives that you are faithful. I am blown away at the provision that you have given to this church family as a whole and as I think about individuals that you have proven yourself over and over and over and we confess that we so easily forget that and we try to take things into our own hands and so Father, we, we need your Holy Spirit to infiltrate our hearts and remind us, especially in the midst of trials, that you are always here, that you are always faithful and that you are for us, that you love us more than we could ever imagine, that you will never let us go. Help us believe that you are a promise keeper and help us proclaim your promises to a world that desperately needs to hear it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so once again, if you're a guest with us, we do this every Sunday. We celebrate communion, which is a way for us to be reminded of the promises of God. The, this was instituted by Christ, and the bread represents his body. The juice represents his blood that was shed for us for the forgiveness of our sins. And so if you've never come to a point where you recognize the promises of God are for you, you've never placed your trust in Christ as Savior, and asked for forgiveness and repented of your sins, I would encourage you, make today that day. Receive that gift, the greatest gift you will ever receive, salvation. If you're a believer, this is a time for you to reflect on the faithfulness of God. I would encourage you to reflect on this past year and what God has done, even in our faithlessness at times, how God has provided for us over and over. You would not be here today, right now in this room, if God hadn't been faithful into your life. Every one of us should be thankful for that. And so as we take communion, let's be thankful for his faithfulness. This is also a time for us to be thankful in our giving. If you're a visitor with us, don't feel obligated, but that's what those boxes are. There's stations here and here and in the back. So you can just follow the crowd. If you're a believer, we'd encourage you to, to join us in the celebration. If you're not a believer, we'd encourage you to, to use this time to just get alone with God for a moment. I'll be in the back if you need prayer or, gosh, if, if God has moved in your heart and has drawn you to him and you, you feel him calling you for salvation, I would love to celebrate with you.
But if you need prayer uh, and just a reminder of God's promises, I would love to, to talk to you in the back. If you've got questions about salvation or baptism or church membership, don't leave today until you get those questions answered. I would love to talk to you more. But during this time, I want you to respond as God is calling you. After everybody's gone through the line, we're going we're gonna to stand, we're going to worship and celebrate God's faithfulness. You come as God is calling you.